It's Dr. Stu's podcast, number 83. Wow. I like to say download on iTunes, register at iTunes. You can hear the podcast at drstuespodcast.com. If you're on iTunes, you'll get an alert. They let you know, hey, there's a brand new Dr. Stu's podcast, and you can't miss it because it alerts you, and you download it, and you enjoy Dr. Stu's podcast. I have to say, for an idea that started at Conrad's Restaurant here in Glendale uh, about two or three years ago, this has really branched out to 83 very informative very opinionated, very dynamic podcast, which certainly uh, targets a certain member, uh, members of the population, specifically a lot of females who are pregnant, families, guys uh, whose loved ones, wives, girlfriends are pregnant. And we try to uh, all uh, over the world, all over the world, all over the world. And we're listening to all over the world. We try to address the issues of bad science uh, unnecessary C-sections, and we've got another guest. Last time we had Don Thompson, who was terrific, president and founder of ImprovingBirth.org. We learned a lot from her. Before I introduce the guest for this episode, I want to say hello once again to the star of Dr. Stu's podcast, our very own Dr. Stuart Fishbein. Thank you, Brian. You know, this is interesting because uh, every every podcast now is a milestone, and 83 is not uh, sort of a special number but it's just uh every podcast we we're getting closer to 100 can't get to 100 without doing uh, 83 i do want to say uh hello to all you people back in the united states because while this podcast will be playing i will be with my family in scotland wow we're going to be touring scotland we're going to the highlands and we're going to go to some castles and and i'm uh, jealous i'm jealous how many nights in scotland 11 wow right and then four in london how many are you traveling with There'll be four of us. Okay. My daughter uh, and my two uh, middle son, my two twin stepsons. And your former wife. Oh, no, just the uh, da- <laughs> d- daddy and the kids. Yes. That's the, wonderful. The ex-wife is not coming on the trip. But I know Amazing you, that, but I know you do vacation with your ex-wife. We, we're friends. We don't vacation together. And, but well, no, you did vacation on a ski trip. Last no, year. Oh, no, that wasn't the ex-wife. Oh, that was okay. my sister. All right. I, I, I miss her. <laughs> Close. Okay. <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, we have a lot of great oh, information. that's pretty funny. Uh, some uh, important piece of information. If you hear the website and you have a question for Dr. Stu, he reads and responds to almost all yeah. emails. I, yeah. I, well, I read them all and I respond to them all. He's been an OBGYN for decades here it in, may Southern, take me a while. in Southern California. The website address, the email address, forgive me, Stu at gmail.com yeah you know what i also like to uh put you know we don't usually put out a, a like a advertisement for my regular website but i think i'll put that out in this podcast it's birthinginstincts.com mm. birthinginstincts.com that's my you know my practice website which has has testimonials it has a description of what home birth with an obstetrician's like it has some videos on it it has links to the podcast of course and links to a Fearless Pregnancy, which is a, a book that I wrote back in 2010. And Dr. Sue, for those who don't know, before we get to our great guest, Tanya Raby, uh, the, uh, your, your passion right now is home births, is allowing for uh, women and their partners uh, to have that very important, very emotional, very momentous birth of a child inside their home, not in the 
oftentimes sterile confines of a hospital. Now, we've debated in the past, does the hospital have the greatest and latest, most innovative scientific apparatus at their disposal? We'll all agree, yeah, they probably do. But nonetheless, uh, you keep coming back to the virtues of home birthing. Spend 30 seconds to talk about, for me, the virtues of home birthing compared to the clearly obvious um, uh, overshadowing in terms of uh, crisis management uh, tools. <laughs> Just basic numbers, right? Uh, well, tools and, and machines available in the event of a pregnancy and a challenge during pregnancy available at the hospital. Well, Brian, I've been a supporter of the midwifery model of care for you know a number of years now. I mean, I've been backing midwives since 1986, and I've been uh, collaborating with them since 1996, 95, 96, and I've been doing home birthing for five years now. And I can't believe when I say it, it's been five years already. Um, home birthing obviously isn't for everybody. Uh, one of my slogans is that informed choice is, but you know, home birthing isn't, but uh, home and having infor- information. The reason that I find that, that the numbers that midwives will give, even though they cherry pick normal people, um, I happen to have the skills to do things like breaches and twins and, and, and V-backs after one or two or even three C-sections at home, which which some midwives will not be doing in certain states like California, it's not even legal for them to do VBAC, I mean, not breach or twins. But I find that the reason that this is a should should be a reasonable option is because the hospital model isn't doing so well. I mean, we have a 32% cesarean section rate overall, some, some are much higher. We have a lot of interventions. Patient satisfaction is not high. And in truth, if I may very quickly, that cesarean rate is high. We talked on the last podcast Thursday and Fridays how they just do cesarean so they can get to a golf game. The truth is that uh, if these medical professionals, the doctors, wanted to bring that C-section rate down, it would seem to me that in concert they could very quickly do that if their priority was not their social calendar. That's a little harsh and okay, a little callous. And I, and I don't want to be harsh and callous, but, but, it, I'm, but I'm a layperson. There's, and, there's certainly significant truth to that. The bottom line is, is birth is not something that can be scheduled. And this is something that, that everybody who does home birthing knows that. We live a life where we're, we're, on the, we're on call all the time because we allow mammals to labor like mammals are designed to labor. But if you schedule a C-section, guess what? You are scheduling the birth. Right, but it's not, that's, you know, that's not, you, you asked, you know, why I do home birthing and why home birthing is better or, or is a better option. And it's because we respect the idea that when a mammal goes into labor, all right, mammals don't schedule their births and mammals don't schedule C-sections. And I've said this a million times, unless, of course, you're French bulldogs, which, of course, you have your scheduled C-section. However, right, right, right. if you're not a French bulldog, if you're a horse or a deer or a cow and you want to go into labor, you go off to a quiet place, you go off by yourself. And if you're hungry, you eat. And if you're thirsty, you drink. And if you want to walk around because you're uncomfortable, you walk around and no one's restricting you. And when you're ready to give birth, the baby falls into the dirt. No one separates the baby from the mother. No one rushes in to cut the cord. And babies are left alone. When and, a, and you do it in the woods without a nurse or doctor around. They're all by themselves. And when a mammal is threatened, when a mammal is anxious, when a mammal is starved, when a mammal is interrupted, labor is dysfunctional. And therefore, in the hospital model, everything that goes on there is antithetical 
to the design of how mammals are designed to give birth. And that is why you need like all this high tech technology and stuff that you talk about all the time. Yes, when you end up meddling with birth, you end up needing technology. Let's get to our great guest. Well, here's a good lead in because we just talked briefly about the fact that that nobody rushes in to cut the cord and nobody rushes in to separate the mother from the baby or the placenta. And, and Tanya, our guest today, is I'm gonna let you introduce her, but her specialty is dealing with cord blood, and so go ahead. Yeah, Tanya Raby is a regional manager for a cord blood registry. Tell us, uh, that, that sounds like a uh, esteemed title, and it sounds like you <laughs> yeah. work really hard, and I know you have a lot of passion, and I know you're an intellectual, and you fight a good fight, and I'm sure you do it uh, with great enthusiasm. Well, she doesn't really have to fight. She's a, she's, she's, she has a good product that she wants people to know what it's about, because you know, there's, there's things about stem cells in the cord blood that have advantages. The, the problem, the dilemma that a lot of patients face is whether or not to collect cord blood. What are the advantages sure. of cord blood? What's the cost of doing it? What's the, um, what is the, is it, does it interrupt the, the uh, mother-baby bonding issue? And so, the, question, the question is, a lot of lay people, certainly myself, uh, not a female, uh, not married, not a father, but a lot of females who might be uh, pregnant or might not even be pregnant yet, uh, they might be, Tanya Rabbi, a bit unsure of a cord blood registry, what it represents and what it actually does in real life in terms of their pregnancy. Why don't you take a few moments, as much as you need, to edify our listeners as to what a cord blood registry does, uh, why it's a good thing for expecting moms and expecting couples. Okay, thank you very much. Well, um, and talk a little bit louder if you can, okay. my dear. Is this better for That's you? That's great. You sound great. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, Cord Blood Registry, CBR for short, is a company that has been around for over 20 years. And what we do is store umbilical cord blood and tissue. And you're asking me, hey, why do you want to do that? Well, the umbilical cord blood and tissue has very valuable newborn stem cells in it that, um, you know, they can only save this one and only time. And what stem cells are is basically like a master cell that makes up the entire body. So these master cells make up your blood, they make up your skin, they make up your skeleton. So if something's going wrong, you can actually use these stem cells to help fix the body. And so you might be familiar with, let's say, like cancer treatments that they actually use stem cells from bone marrow. And this is um, kind of similar to that in which they're using stem cells, but unlike bone marrow where they have to go through a process in... Um, a very painful process, Yeah, actually. a painful process in extracting the, the stem cells. These stem cells from the umbilical, umbilical cord is young, it's fresh, it's easy to collect, yeah. painless for the mom and for the baby. And, and much of it would be thrown out. Interesting political obstacles and challenges because I've been doing talk radio for a long time. A here, very long time. Here in Southern California and people may not remember, but before the tragedy of September 11, 2001, the story on the front page every day was whether or not President George Bush at the time, uh, how he would rule on the sensitive issue of stem cells. Um, I wonder if the issue of stem cells uh, for humans. I wonder if some of the hard edges of that debate have sort of come away and people, uh, you know, uh, almost a decade and a half later, Tanya uh, Rabbi, are beginning to focus on the actual pragmatic logistic benefits of stem cell research rather than the moral, social, conservative, political argument that it represents. 
And that's a great question. And actually, it comes up quite often. And what people don't know is that these stem cells, they're not embryonic stem cells that have all that controversy uh, associated with it. So these stem cells are basically... Um, from the umbilical cord blood that could otherwise just be thrown away. Um, it's not, let's say, killing a fetus when you're you're doing the the research for uh, embryonic stem cell research. Which was they, the big thing back in uh, in, in the two thousand one. Yes, correct. Early and they were talking about you know ter- you know using aborted fetuses to create a stem cell line, and certainly that still remains uh, controversial. Although right now I think that there's you know uh, with the current administration there is uh, fetal stem cell research going on, but this is completely different and those stem cells are actually probably have more potential and maybe not maybe tiny can straighten me out but in my own opinion those are those stem cells are are, are plural potential they can basically become every stem, every cell in the body whereas cord blood stem cells i'm not sure yet if that's the case so why don't you explain that to us well for the embryonic stem cells basically you're right they can turn into anything but they're at a point where it's almost cancerous because it won't stop replicating and that's not the case with newborn stem cells. They're the youngest, freshest type of stem cell you can get. They can turn into almost anything, and they can replicate faster than, uh, let's say, stem cells that come from a bone marrow or from peripheral blood. And forgive me, layperson question. They're mm-hmm. not bad. They're not bad at all. Actually, they're they're amazing. They're, they're smart. They know uh, where to go in the body, what to fix. Um, so that's why a lot of people are actually taking it from the, the newborns. When baby's born, they can actually take it freeze it and if it's ever needed they can use it in in treatments later on down the line do you find uh tanya raby and dr Stu, do you find that uh parents new parents in 2015 hear the articulate and uh right sounding argument that you've both just made and parents new ones in 2015 would say Given that set of facts, oh my gosh, of course, let's, uh, l- l- let's, let's uh, be on the cord blood registry. Let's have our newborn be on the cord blood registry. Or is it still a fight to get some to say, yeah, I want to put my baby on the cord blood registry. And if it is a fight, what is their beef? What is their opposition, Dr. Stu and Tanya, for including their newborn child in the cord blood registry? You go, you go first, but I, I have my two comments, but you go first. Okay, thank you very much. Um, we have over 600,000 people that have stored their child's umbilical cord blood or tissue with us. So it's definitely a growing business. We have over half a million people with us already. And that's just, and and that's just CBR, past, right? Yeah, that's just and our there, company. There's, there's a dozen, and probably a dozen cord blood companies, mm-hmm. too. And CBR means cord blood registry. Yes. That's a specific private company. I see. Yes, and we're definitely the largest one out there. We've been around for over 20 years. Um, but, yeah, like we we definitely take the time to preserve the, the stem cells properly. We have the quality that's out there. That's why a lot of people are doing it. And the only hesitation that you you asked me about what what's holding people back, it's just not covered by insurance. That's it. Yeah, that is the, the main thing. And the other thing in my in, the, in my world is that people really want to go with delayed cord clamping and if you don't get a sample before the placenta separates it's really hard to get an adequate amount of blood although they're doing better now with smaller collections of blood but you can always do tissue tissue is something where you take a piece of the cord 
like a good foot long piece of the cord and they send that and inside that cord are stem cells that are what are they in the Wharton's jelly or are they just in the blood you know itself? we save the entire cord tissue because there is stem cells in the Wharton's jelly there's uh, stem cells in the epithelial lining so they don't know what the best type of stem cell is from the tissue they save it all yeah so those are the two things the one is the one is the cost mm-hmm. there's a the, typically the cost is what approximately what Maybe for the cord blood, about $1,500 to initially process it. And is this the cost to get on the registry, guys? It's this the is cost the cost to store to, the blood. To, okay. to have the doctor collect it. This is the cost for our storage kit and for the shipping. And, so then, by extension, and then by extension to make you and your babies uh, cord blood uh, available. available and accessible exactly. to for, others. For, who for are basically looking, their own family, yes. Yeah, who are looking, by the way, uh, let's call it what it is. Uh, new parents are looking in a marketplace. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah, they can actually, um, you know, for $1,500 initial processing and then $150 a year so uh, for their yearly storage, storage fee. fee. Um, and if they wanted to do cord tissue as well, it's about another $1,000 to start and another $150 This is year. an obvious question and one I maybe should have asked a moment ago, but at least I'm asking it now. What would, what circumstances surrounding the birth of a newborn in a couple's life, what circumstances involving the baby, the newborn, would compare? the parents to reach out to Tanya Rebbe and the Cord Blood Registry. What what do they see in their newborn that gets them to the telephone or to the computer to emailing you or calling you in the first place, Tanya? Honestly, it's probably just peace of mind. I mean, you want your child to, to be healthy. You, you This is basically like an insurance plan that you can purchase, but you only have one chance to do so, and that's when the baby is being born. Yeah, this is not generally for something that you know that's wrong with the baby now, You have, to, but you have to make the collection right at the time the baby is born. Sure. You can't do it later. You can't do it before. You can't, you can't decide... Uh, three hours after birth that I want to do it. You just you can't do those. You gotta make a decision, have the kit available in the house, all that sort of thing. The the truth is is that that what we're finding is that stem cells can be used years later, not just sometimes for the baby itself when the baby is growing up and maybe develops childhood leukemia or something like that. Uh, but also for obviously t- frozen. Yes. Yeah. It's uh yeah. And but it but it's but also potentially it could be a match for a sibling or another family member. And I know in my own practice that some people who've had a baby that has a problem that may be relieved by stem cells, don't, they don't necessarily purposely have another baby, but if they have a second baby, they, they, autom- they, they, save the, they go for the stem cell collection in hopes that that may someday help their first child. And there's proof, Tanya and Dr. Stu, that the cord blood registry does in fact save young lives. Yes, definitely. What we're trying to do is help either save or improve lives by providing stem cells that can help, um, you know, in treatment. What sort of, what's, can you go through a list of some of the things that stem cells have been used successfully for? Of course. Uh, Okay, go. Yeah, I mean, there's been over 30,000 transplants worldwide using uh, newborn stem cells. And... um, of which there's about 80 indications and majority of it are for certain types of cancers. There's blood disorders, metabolic disorders, and immune system disorders. So there's a lot going on with cord blood, but what's really exciting is all the research that's being done today. I mean, we're looking into cerebral palsy. We're looking into hearing loss. We're looking into pediatric stroke. And the biggest right now is autism. Yeah, see this, so Brian, this is, this is one of the things that's impressive about this is that that we know that stem cells right now can do some good, but the incidents where it's used are pretty rare. Mm-hmm. But 
science is taking off in the genetic uh, the genetic world and the able to, to diagnose or pre-diagnose genetic things to mod, to to modulate or to change the genes in, uh, preconception or after you know well pre-implantation with IVF. So we we don't know where the research in the future is, but you know, twenty years from now. These stem cells might be like better than gold. It sounds Tanya Rabie. And they might not. And the problem and is you not. might be spending all but this money. But you don't know unless you try. Well, it's so yeah, as Tanya said, and I, the way I describe it to my clients is, again, remember, I just give informed consent. I don't try to twist their arm right. one way or the other. But it, she described it well as an insurance policy. You buy homeowner's insurance, okay, in case your house burns down. You don't hope your house burns down. You don't want it to burn down, but you have insurance for that. And you pay it every year. You buy disability insurance, or, or you know, for those of us who are self-employed, it's and, a, and, it's it's called you, a what-if purchase. And I've been paying disability insurance now since, uh, geez, eighty, 80 so for thirty years. And I, you know, and, I'll, you've, I'll been never, and you've been losing uh, on that bet. Well, yeah, I'm losing on that bet. But had I, you know, had a serious injury uh, ten years ago or even tomorrow, whatever else, it, it will pay. It would have paid for me to do that. But most of the time, you're going to end up buying those stem cells. You're going to end up keeping them for twenty or thirty years. You're going to find that you know you never did need it, but you, you, it's like insurance. Tanya Raby is the regional manager for the Cord Blood Registry. Of course, we're talking about newborns here on Dr. Stu's podcast number 83. I ask you in your in your uh, organization, how many folks are employed in this organization? Um, <laughs> I think. Is that a bad question? No, no, you can ask that question. I mean, there's people that we have over our, at our labs over in Tucson. That's right. where we store all the stem cells. We have an office up in San Bruno. You notice, you notice they pick at the hottest place in the in the in the country to, hey, to freeze but the stem it's cells. Safe. It's absolutely safe. There's and no it, hurricanes and or it's earthquakes. Also, and it's also in truth, uh, you know, get a little political. It's also in truth, probably a friendlier state to do business in than California. Well, that's true as far as <laughs> as far as taxes and uh, and regulations yeah. and stuff. I was going to say that too because you and know, I we've had that conversation. Let's but avoid, but what she just said is actually just right. She's right. There's almost no natural disasters in Tucson, so the bank couldn't. With the electricity, the the foundation isn't going to be compromised by by a hurricane, a tornado, or a uh, earthquake. Yeah, because these stem cells are something that you want to have for you know your a lifetime. Your, exactly. You don't want it to be destroyed, and so we wanted to make sure we have a safe lab location. But it is hot in Tucson. So it's it's hot, <laughs> but we have people out there that know what to do, and the it's stored at I think it's negative one hundred ninety seven degrees Celsius. Are you still finding Tanya? If I would ask you uh, percentage wise, you know, a pie graph, one hundred percent of your day, one hundred percent of your efforts uh, annually, if you even broke it out there, how much uh, in a percentage? of the uh, cord blood registry's work is tied up in the uh, decades-old political debates over stem cells. Is that still relevant, or is that sort of dissipating as a political issue? I mean... In your view. Uh, see, it's, it's just a different type of stem cell, so we don't really have to overcome that obstacle because with... Uh, the umbilical cord blood and tissue, I mean, there's only three options. I mean, it either gets discarded as medical waste. Um, there are certain places that you can actually donate it. And then otherwise, you can preserve it for your own family. In so, your, In your experience, what percentage of families are saying yes uh, to the cord blood and saying yes to I want to be on the registry? You know, I think in different cities, it's just, I mean, all uh, over the place. Uh, take LA. Uh, so... 
I mean, I, I deal with the LA market and yeah. I find that more and more people are doing it. So I want to say out of like my top hospitals, at least half of the people that are delivering it are now saving their um, child well, stem that's, cells. That, that's a great, that's an mm -hmm. improvement over what it used to be. Oh, definitely. Right. Yeah. And I, think, I think it is a socioeconomic thing. I think you're going to see people at Cedar sinai for instance, storing blood, whereas people at LA County... USC, probably not so much. I want to talk to you, uh, Tanya. I want to thank you and invite you to hang around and uh, comment on this. Uh, but we have a presidential race under uh, under underway here. <laughs> and Dr. Stu is, you know, a conservative guy. And I'm off to the left. And sometimes we talk about issues and we haven't gotten together in a while. It's Podcast 83. Brian oh. does tend to make these transitions suddenly. We'll get back to court blood in a second. <laughs> and we might not. No worries. We, 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 might get we, might not. Up, we might get wrapped up in, in politics. By the, by the way, I, want to do, I just want to say that Tanya did violate the uh, Dr. Stu's podcast dress code okay. she looks beautiful she, she, looks beautiful. she dressed up <laughs> i have to ask you tanya uh before just in case we don't get back very clearly and uh consider this your 30 seconds to uh share with our listeners any plugs that you have any websites you want them to check out any reading you might want them to uh to buy or to uh, check out of the library uh, so they might better understand the cord blood registry. Uh, Tanya Raby is here with that. Plug-a-rooza, plug-a-palooza. Uh, plug <laughs> yes. So, you know, science continues to advance and there's a lot of research going on with stem cells today. So I encourage you that if you're pregnant, please go ahead and give us a call, one 888 cord blood Speak with one of our experts. They'll give you additional information about uh, the power of newborn stem cells and why to store your umbilical cord blood and tissue. Okay, and I have a quick question for you. And, uh, and, and that's 888 cord blood. That's it. Correct, okay. And I have, and it's 888 cord blood, right? Yes. Okay, <laughs> I have a question for you that, you know, you don't have to answer if you don't want to, all right? But I know you said something about, you, you talked about your company and how it's been around for the longest time. There are so many choices on the internet and, you know, in my own office, I get a lot of reps that come in from other companies. Why CBR as opposed to many of the other companies out there? What would, I know you work for them, so I know you know the party line, but, but as a consumer who, are, who might be listening to this podcast, why, what, what, why should they pick CBR? Yeah, take us beyond the two-minute presentation that these representatives do in the office of Dr. Stu to get him to sign on to their product and service. Well, when you're looking for a cord blood bank, you're looking for a bank that has a lot of experience. And CBR has definitely over 50% of the market share because of you know our quality and our longevity that we've been around. Um, we know what we're doing. We do a lot of clinical trials to help further the research and advance the science. Um, our quality is off the roof with 99% stem cell recovery rate, which is greater than a lot of the other processing systems that other companies use. Uh, we talked about the fact that it's on a safe location over in Tucson, Arizona, so there's no natural disasters going on there. Um, so those are some of the reasons why a lot of people choose CBR. And I have a question for you, Tanya, uh, and this is geared to the moms and the dads uh, who are expecting, who are uh, making decisions every day, uh, uh, maybe now thinking about cord blood and whether or not they'd be part of the registry. Uh, edify me because I'm a layperson and edify moms and dads listening who might choose to participate and might choose not to participate. What are the positives? What are the benefits 
of a young couple or a middle-aged couple that's having a newborn uh, to appreciate and participate and patronize uh, the cord blood registry and get in there? How could their child's life, maybe years down the road in terms of health, benefit from a decision that mom or dad may make shortly after their birth uh, to enroll them in the cord blood registry? And that's a great question since there's been so many of our clients that have come back to us uh, thanking us for having their, their child stem cells available. So, I mean, my favorite story goes back to a little girl um, that suffered from a brain injury as she was playing outside uh, next to the pool. And she fell in and she was unconscious for about 47 minutes. And by the time she regained consciousness, she lost so much brain cells that she couldn't function anymore. She couldn't walk or talk. But she lived. But she lived. She's and a miracle. She's a miracle baby, and, uh, but she just wasn't hitting her milestones. And so they had her stem cells. They reinfused it back into her body. And like, the, like I said before, these stem cells are just smart. They know where to go and what to fix. And slowly, uh, she continued therapy, but uh, with her stem cells, she uh, hit those milestones again, being able to walk, talk, eat, play. Um, these are all very important things. So that's a rare case, but that just goes to show you stem cells are very valuable and gives you that peace of mind that if something happens in your child's future, that stem cells could be there to help. And uh, in your view, it sounds like you're saying, if not, if the parents had not reached out and had been part of the cord blood registry at the time of birth, uh, these advances that their own child uh, experienced firsthand and the family by extension experienced firsthand, uh, these advances uh, would not have come. I think that the advances would have just been a lot slower in coming. Yeah. So the stem cells definitely helped. And improve. at that point, there's no time to wait, Dr. Stu. Well, you, yeah, you, you can't get them anymore. So now, I mean, it, it's unlike, and it's very difficult to be able to go to a cord blood bank and find a, find somebody that's a, a match, and it doesn't really happen fast. And and I don't I don't I don't even know how it even works. Uh, maybe Tanya knows that, but how does somebody who didn't store their blood uh, do, are they do they have access to a cord blood bank? Uh, yeah, logistically, how does it go how down does a, in, in the hospital or in a home birth? Is it pretty soon after the birth where some sort of paperwork is presented to mom and dad or the couple or the mom specifically and says, look, here's the deal. Now, obviously, an informed uh, mom who's pregnant who listens to Dr. Stu's podcast uh, typically knows this type of thing is coming. But are these decisions that are asked to be made or declined? Uh, by a new mom, by, by a new family, uh, pretty close to immediately after well, the birth that, of the child. There's two questions there, Brian. One is the people, people who are going to collect cord blood are all consented prior to, to the time they go into labor. So the decision has already been made, all right? But my question was more like if they, if they didn't collect cord blood and their kid is now five years old and falls into the pool and has an hypoxic event, what's the ability for anybody in the general population to get access to? Uh, to stem cells and what's the likelihood they're going to be a match for their kid and there are public banks out there that have stem cells available um, so they can check the reg with those registries to see if there's a match however those registries are, are mainly available for life-threatening conditions if you're using somebody else's stem cells you know you're using it for cancer or something else that it's 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 life or death Otherwise, if you have something that um, like autism or diabetes or cerebral palsy that's non-life threatening and it's just a quality of life issue, 
you need to have your own stem cells available. So what a lot of people don't know is a lot of these treatments and research that they're doing is all autologous, meaning you have to have your own stem cells. Um, you can't even use the siblings. A siblings is more used in mm. you know, a cancer treatment or something like that, and a related donor is better than an unrelated donor, but if that's not available, that's when you go to that public bank and find well, thanks a Thanks for match. clarifying that because that's, that's been always nebulous for me. I've yeah. never been really clear on what it, what is, what's available in a public bank. And mm-hmm. that's great, uh, concise information from Tanya Raby. She is the regional manager for the Cord Blood Registry. We'll have on drstewspodcast.com, we'll have a link to get in touch with Tanya. And, of course, if you listen on iTunes, uh, you get uh, an alert so you never miss uh, one of Dr. Stu's podcasts. We're up to number 83. If you want to email Dr. Stu, uh, he does respond to lots of them. Ask Dr. Stu. All, all of them. At G- you do respond. I know you read them all. Do you respond to I all? respond to all. Okay, well, cool. Yeah, except the ones that are like uh, the advertisements. Like We get some junk mail <laughs> okay. in there, too. Ask Dr. Stu at gmail.com. That's a great website to have uh, because uh, you got a guy with decades of experience here in Southern California willing to answer your questions. I have to ask you oh, before we Shoot, wrap- I thought I was going to get by without the political uh, presidential election. No, uh, before we wrap up, because there is another doctor in the Republican field. He's a neurosurgeon, retired. Dr. Ben Carson. Here's one of my great concerns. I am, call me a throwback. I believe that, uh, and you know, you might say, well, you supported Obama and and my, uh, my bias is clear on that and I'll plead guilty. But my point is that uh, it seems a lot of first term senators, a lot of people who never held, Carly Fiorina, never held political office, Ben Carson, never held political office, uh, who are coming and running, hoping that there'll be a book deal or a radio show at the end. It would seem to me that the presidency, I hearken back to George H.W. Bush, number 41, whose presidency, although it was only four years, was at the end of a life of academics, a life of learning, a life of experiences, a life in the military. And I sort of, I sort of lament that these folks come along whether they're Democrats or Republicans, and they're going to run early. Uh, you know, running for president is going to be the first thing they do rather than the last thing they do. I'd like the leader of my country, and by extension, the leader of the free world, to be somebody who has lived a life full of experiences, mistakes, victories that they bring to the Oval Office rather than somebody who's been a senator for three years who's just winging it, or even worse, well, I don't think uh, that- uh, even worse, a campaign that's being waged with full knowledge that that candidate will never win just so a book deal will be a, the light at the end of the well, tunnel. I don't, I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. I don't think that a person who has a life experience uh, necessarily has to have that life experience in politics. I think you can have many, many experiences. I think somebody like Carly Fiorina... Uh, or even Mitt Romney for that instance. Even well, Mitt Romney was a governor, but I'm just saying that he was a politician for 20 years. He ran for governor, right? But U.S. I'm, Senate, but and I'm the saying, presidency twice. But he was chastised because he was a businessman. Now I would say that we've tried politicians for quite a while now, and the country's in quite a bit of a mess. I do agree with you that people that have no experience, like Dr. Ben Carson, pretty much have zero chance. And and nor would I would I want to vote for him. I think that he would be a great uh, advisor, somebody on the. Uh, Somebody on the, uh, what do you call it? The, um, uh, yeah, cabinet, on the, the cabinet. cabinet. What do you think of Donald Trump? Because he <laughs> referred this week to the other Republican candidates as clowns. Well, you know, those guys who really are no, a bunch I would, of clowns. I would love Donald Trump to be my Secretary of State or my guy, somebody in business. Yeah, because, yeah. Yeah, because he, knows, Treasury how, Secretary. he knows how to ri- drive a deal. 
but he's not somebody who, who's probably going to be uh, be able to moderate both sides of the political aisle. And as a physician, you don't have any sort of uh, feeling of, uh, you know, that he's your brethren, Doctor Ben Carson. No, I think I think he's a marvelous man, and his story is a marvelous story. He is. He's but I also think I also think that the most experienced person in the in the political race right now is probably also not very well qualified to be president. Who's and that? that would be Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton. Yeah. Right. right. She's got a great experience. She's got a great resume. Yes, yeah, she does. Problem problem is, is that I think she'd be a terrible president. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you have lots of experience makes you a good candidate. I mean, I, I, I like the idea. I've heard it before. And again, we've had many senators. I mean, Barack Obama was one of them who've gone from being a short-term senator to uh, the president of the United States. But I think that people with executive experience, I think that there is something to be safe for governors. And you got Rick Perry, the longest serving governor. He's not anymore of Texas. 14 years. He's out there on CBS. Uh, yeah, he's a buddy of yours, too. Last weekend. He likes me and I like him. Yeah, you we, do. I know you do. We like dogs, so we compare pictures of our dogs. He's basically out there saying, uh, not so thinly veiled, I've got executive experience. Mm. And he says, look, America made a mistake. He says this by nominating a first term U.S. senator, a clear shot. At fellow Republicans, well, Ted Cruz, Rand Paul, and Marco, Marco Rubio, Rubio right. who have the exact same resume that Barack well, Obama they're, had they're all going that to... he was criticized for after he won the election. <laughs> they're all going to jockey for position, and that's, that's the way it goes. But I, 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 listen, you know me, Brian. I think anybody, anybody, even a, like a, 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 pota- a French fry would be better than, than Hillary Clinton. All right. Okay. All right. We thank you for joining us here <laughs> on The Morning Answer. It's not just great stuff like... Uh, this isn't The Morning Answer. Tanya Raby and the... Yeah, it's uh, funny. You said The Morning Answer. That's pretty funny. Did I say The Morning Answer? <laughs> yes, you did. Oh, I did. So let me put a plug in for Brian's show in the morning on, on uh, did K- I say KRLA that? 870 here just in Los now? Angeles. Oh, I wasn't even thinking. Yeah, well, you're already out the door. So it's like, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so, but he does a great talk show here with uh, two, two of his colleagues. Yeah, uh, Ben Shapiro and... Alicia Krause. Krause. We have a great time. Tanya Raby, thank you for your information. She's reg- you. regional manager for the Cord Blood Registry. A lot of great information. I noticed she didn't ask Tanya what she thought of uh, Ben Carson. or uh, No, because you're a doctor. She's not. And yeah. we're going to link on drstewspodcast.com. <laughs> and of course, uh, on uh, you'll tweet out yes, and we'll we'll, have yeah. on the Facebook page more information About on your CBR. great organization, the Cord Blood Registry. We thank you for joining us on Dr. Stu's podcast number 80. 80- Three, 17 away from the big 100. Thank you for joining us. Thank you to our guest. Thanks to our guest on Podcast 82. Uh, we really do appreciate it. Send an email. He'll answer. AskDrStew at gmail.com. For Dr. Stuart Fishbein and for our guest, Tanya Raby, I'm Brian Whitman. Thanks for joining us on Dr. Stu's podcast. Podcast.